So here now the very word of God, as it is given to us in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, reading the first six verses. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to truly bring it alive for us. Heavenly Father, as we delve into this oh-so-important, so-crucial sort of turning point in Luke's gospel, as we see uh, uh, the, the, the strategy of the kingdom begin to unfold before our eyes, I pray that you will show us or bring it to our attention through your Holy Spirit what this strategy is, how central you are to it, how blessed we are to be part of it, and and how it will change the world when it's done correctly. So, Lord, we ask that it would be reflected in our lives that we would truly live this kingdom strategy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, those of you who have been in military situations, you know that essential to any military endeavor, any battle, any war, is that you have some sort of a strategy. Brute force does not necessarily win the day when it comes up against a great strategy. Quite often, brute force will just fall on its face. When a great example of this comes from Old Testament scripture, and most of you know this story. What a great story, the story of Gideon from the book of Judges. Now, Gideon, after he asked the Lord for direction by putting out that fleece, is what most of you know. Well, then he realizes that it's he's been called to go up against the Midianites. Now, the Midianites were horribly oppressing the Israelites at those, that time. And they brought this massive force from the east. It consisted of Midianites and Amalekites and all kinds of people. And, and they were ready just to annihilate Israel. So, uh, I mean, Gideon mustered, I'm going to talk about that word a little bit later on, he mustered the the fighting force of Israel, and he ended up with about 32,000 men. Now, here's what we read in Judges. It was not a fair fight, because we read that the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley, that's the Jezreel Valley, like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. So with 32,000 men, Gideon is horribly outnumbered. And so it's just probably going to be a massacre. But God looks at Gideon and he says, Gideon, um, that's too many men. Uh, You don't need 32,000. So ask all of them which ones of them are afraid and let them all go home. Well, I was 22,000 men said, I'm I'm scared. And so he gets left with 10,000 men. Because what the Lord said is, I don't want you going against into this battle with 32,000 men. Because if you win, you're going to accredit it to your own power. I want you to know that there's no one who is going to make any difference in my 
What happened? Just turn it off. That's a gremlin, folks. Uh, uh, We have no idea why that happened. Uh, But anyway, keep your focus. If I can keep my focus, you can keep yours. Okay? So God was saying to Gideon that 32,000 men, way too many. I want you to know that if this battle is won, that no one won it except me. That's the strategy of the kingdom. So with 10,000 men, he said, that's still too many. Take them down to the creek and everybody who laps up like a dog, send them home. Well, Gideon ended up with 300 men against an innumerable number. I mean, there's no way, humanly speaking, that he's going to be able to do that. And seeing God said, okay, that's a fair fight. So Gideon had a strategy. He divided those 300 men in 100 apiece. They went out in the middle of the night. They surrounded the camp and they were armed with a, a, a horn and with a jar and with a torch. And of course, a sword probably on their back. But at, at the signal, they, 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 they broke the jars. They blew the horns. They lit the torches. And with a blood curdling battle cry, they rushed the camp. Now, what happened was, is that the, the, the Midianites freaked out. I mean, they just absolutely went berserk. And so they started running in all directions. They lost all sense of composure. And they started fighting each other. And before you knew it, they'd killed themselves. And so the day was won. But the point is this. Without God, that doesn't work, folks. Without God being the one who drives the, the, the battle, that, that, that takes the war, that is doing the fighting. Now, we may be his hands and legs and feet and voice, but unless God is the one who is driving this issue, it's going to fail. And that's the very foundation of what we're going to see here. That's the foundation of what Luke has been telling us. That's the foundation of the kingdom strategy. It's a strategy that depends 100% on God. Now, you see, the problem, and, and history has proven this out, is, is that when we begin to stray from that strategy, when, when we begin to put too much importance on ourselves and not enough importance on God, and we start following our own ideas and not God's ideas, all of a sudden we just get way off course. And medieval Catholicism is a testimony to that. And so Jesus is going to implement this kingdom strategy. We've referred to it in the past as the battle plan of the kingdom. But it's the same thing. He's going to implement this strategy so that um, we know what it is. So with that said, let's kind of jump in to um, uh, the text. First of all, looking at the context of this story. Now, Luke continues to have a very tightly knit story. In other words, everything that we have studied is all kind of flowing together, and and, and Luke's not releasing us in this yet. And it goes all the way back, and I know we've been doing this every single Sunday for the last couple of months, but every single one of these goes back to that parable of the sower. When we talked about the parable of the sower going out in the field to sow, we said that the original sower is indeed Jesus, and the field is the world, and the seed is the gospel, and Jesus goes out into that field to sow. Now, some of the soil is going to accept the seed, and some of the soil is not going to accept the seed. There's going to be acceptance and rejection. But the goal was for the entire field, as much as as possible, to bear fruit because that fruit made that field sustainable. 
part of the grain was going to be taken and replanted the next year and the next year and the next year. And that's the plan. That's the strategy is that it is not just one one force, one movement, but that everywhere the gospel goes, there's going to be little plants planted in the good soil and, and they're going to bear fruit and, the, and shine the light of Christ. And that's going to re- replicate itself all over. Now, we saw that illustrated for us, not implemented, but illustrated in the next story when Jesus and his disciples got in the boat and they went over to the other side. And of course, you know that halfway there or partially the way there, Jesus is asleep. A great storm comes and threatens to sink the boat. And we learned something. First of all, Jesus got up and calmed the winds and the waves, asked the disciples where their faith was. And we learned that when Jesus is on the boat... It can't sink. It's never going to sink. But take Jesus out of the boat and one of two things is going to happen. Either that boat is going to sink to the bottom of the Sea of Galilee or it is going to be blown so far off course that it's never going to actually reach its destination. And that is also the very core of this kingdom strategy is that it's essential that Jesus is on the boat. I hope you can see this whole morning is going to be about the preeminence of Christ and the centrality of Jesus. We don't do anything without Jesus. This is his church and his kingdom. And he needs to be at the very forefront, the vanguard of everything that we do. Now, the disciples learned the the power of the holy when Jesus calmed the winds and the waves. And when they got to the other side, they learned that Jesus also has power over evil. Another important point about the kingdom strategy. That, That force that was in the Jezreel Valley of the Midianites and Amalekites, that's overwhelming. And there was an evil force. And under normal circumstances, that's that's the end of Gideon and his men. But with God on their side, nothing is impossible and no one can stand against them. This demonic man who comes running up infested with literally, potentially at least, thousands of demons falls on his face in front of Jesus because they're terrified of Jesus. They have no power over Jesus. They can wipe us out with a blink. We are nothing as far as they're concerned. But when Jesus is on our boat, they're terrified of what Jesus can do. So once again, we see Jesus as the very center of this entire strategy. Now, that story brought out another aspect of this strategy that's very important. The man, after Jesus threw the demons out, you remember, he's sitting at Jesus' feet in his right mind and fully clothed. And he wanted to follow Jesus. He wanted to get in the boat and to sit at his feet and continue to learn and to follow him as his disciples. And it was kind of surprising when Jesus said, no, I don't want you to. But this is such a vital part of the kingdom strategy. He said, I'm going to leave you here. Because what I want you to do is I want you to go around and tell everybody in the Decapolis, which was the area, everybody what God has done for you. In other words, now you're a little speck of light in the middle of darkness. And as my father begins to draw people out of the darkness into his light, they're going to be drawn to your light as long as you let it shine. So get out there and let the light shine. This is how the kingdom is going to exponentially grow throughout the world. Because everywhere there's a seed planted. There's a plant and it bears fruit a hundredfold. And today's harvest becomes tomorrow's sowers. And that's the way that the kingdom is going to expand. 
Now, of course, we also have as part of this, these, those three, um, healings. I call them cameo healings where we have this, this, this focus. We know there are some people's names. We know the details of their healing. And each one of them brought out another aspect of the, of the salvation experience and what this is all about ultimately. We'll get to them later. I want to go ahead and jump into this text because it may not look like it. It's sort of a short text and it's somewhat compressed in Luke. Uh, Matthew has an entire chapter dedicated to this. But this is vital. This is a threshold. This is a turning point. Later on in the 50th verse of this chapter, we're going to read, and Jesus turned his face towards Jerusalem. That means he turns his face towards the cross. That is a threshold, a turning point in Luke's gospel. Now, as just a prelude to that, we are going to see something that we have not seen anywhere in Luke's gospel, and that is Jesus sending out his apostles. So with that said, let's take a look at our text and we will see this strategy unfold for us. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure disease. Now, we're probably going to spend a little bit of an inordinate amount of time on the first couple of verses here. So when it starts to wane in the morning and I'm just on the second verse, don't worry, uh, we'll move rather quickly through uh, the rest of them, although we do have some substantial stops along the way. But I, I, I want to explain, at least I want to give you an image of this, and I hope I did it with that story of Gideon. I told you I was going to go back and explain the word muster to muster. Uh, that's not a word that we normally use all that much, but what we're seeing here, at least in my mind, is a mustering of the apostles. It can be used as a noun, a muster or a mustering, or it can be used as a verb to muster. And basically what it means is to gather. I mean, it's a good translation that it is here to gather a group together uh, with a purpose but it is normally used in a military sense. A formal muster is the, the troops to present themselves to their officers and to stand before them for, for roll call or for inspection or to see if they are battle worthy. And that is exactly what Jesus has done. He has mustered these apostles because now it is time to see if they are battle worthy because that is exactly what they're going to be. They're going to be thrown into a spiritual battle of epic proportions. And all of this, this building up of their faith is all directed towards them being able to stand in that um, that mustering. So when he says that he called the 12 together, call together, that is what, what, what I'm calling mustering. But I also want you to notice that it's an invitation. And it's not just an invitation, boy, I hope you come. I mean, those of you who have been in the military, when you have a mustering and you are called together before your officers, can you say, well, I'm a little bit tired this morning. I think I'll stay in bed. Uh, it, it doesn't work that way. It's a mandatory invitation. You call them together. Now, if you go back and look, you, 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 they're already appointed as apostles. That, that happened way back in the sixth chapter when we read that Jesus called his disciples, a whole bunch of them, and chose from them twelve 
who he made apostles. We'll get to that word in a moment. But he calls them together now. They're already chosen. They're already picked. But he is gathering them, as I said, for the purpose of sending them out. Boy, you have got the whole battle plan here. He calls them. He chooses them. He calls them. He trains them. And then he sends them out uh, on behalf of the kingdom. Well, Anyway, the idea of the 12, um, don't miss that. I don't have time to go into it this morning. There's an awful lot there, maybe in the after church. We'll talk about it a little bit. But the fact that there are 12 apostles, that's not by accident. That just doesn't happen. It's a continuation. There's continuity between the Old Testament, the 12 tribes of Israel, and now the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And we read about that in Revelation where the two, are both part of the new Jerusalem. Now, there's a lot wrapped up in what it means to be the new Israel because that's what these 12 are. But the only thing I want to point out now is the continuity because that new Jerusalem, the gates are the names of the 12 tribes and the foundations are the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So they they, they have not just the beginning of the new church, but they are the bridge actually in between the old and the New Testament. Well, he calls the 12 together and he gave them, make sure you see that, he gave them power and authority. Now, power and authority is, is a theme that has been circulating throughout a lot of our conversations because one of the things that Luke has been doing here is to show us the power and authority that Jesus has over everything. When when Jesus uh, commissions his his apostles at the end of, of, of his stay, just before he goes uh, back to heaven, he says that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And so we have seen Luke explain that to us. We saw him have power and authority over the very elements of creation when he calmed the winds and the waves. We saw that he had power and authority over Satan and the demons and evil and sin in itself. We saw that he had power over the physical well-being of people when he healed the woman with the flow of blood. And he's healed others from a variety of different uh, maladies. And he has power over life and death itself when he raises uh, uh, Jairus' daughter from the grave, or or from the dead, before the grave. So, So we see Jesus, who has power and authority over everything, But now what we learn is that he also has power and authority to delegate at least a portion of that, to impart it, to impute it, to give that power to those that he chooses to give it to. This is not something that you can purchase. It is not something that you deserve or own or have a right to. It is the sovereign will of Jesus to determine who and when he gives this authority and when it will be permanent and when it might be in a temporary sense. But there's something that I want you to see here now as far as Luke's gospel is concerned, especially for those of you who have been here for the entire study. We're about 18 months into Jesus' ministry. For the most part, Jesus' ministry is going to last about three years. So we're, we're pretty close to the halfway mark. Now, up until this point, when most of it's been in Galilee, John tells us about some trips back and forth to Judea, but most of this work has been in the Galilean ministry. And up until this point, especially in Luke, 
It has been all Jesus. Jesus has been the teacher and the preacher. Jesus has been the one who heals the sick. He's been the one who cast out the demons. The disciples have been followers and learners. They may be chosen as apostles, but as apostles, but they still have been in the training mode. Now, after 18 months, probably not even that long, he cuts them loose. He turns them loose. He sends them out with power and authority of their own. And we're going to get to how extraordinary that is in just a moment. But he, 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 this is a turning point, you see, vital to the understanding of the, of, of, of the strategy of the kingdom is the fact that the king is getting ready to leave in 18 months. He's going to be gone. He's going to go back to heaven and be with his father and reign from there. And so these men, it's going to fall upon their shoulders to take the kingdom, the development of the kingdom forward. So this is a vital turn when Jesus begins to impart some of the power and authority that he has, that his father gave to him, that he is now giving to the apostles he is going to leave behind. Now, in particular, this was power and authority over demons and to cure diseases. And I want you to notice that Luke continues as he has done all through this, to make a distinction between spiritual healings of casting out demons and physical healings of of healing the body. Now, I think he does this for a variety of reasons. You can go back to the fourth chapter when a whole bunch of people lined up. And, and even then, Luke says, well, some he threw out demons and some he healed, as if not to confuse the two. Now, even though sin is at the basis of all of this, I think that there's a couple of things going on here. I think on the one hand, Luke wants to make sure that we know that he knows that there's a distinction between the two. And with that understood, he wants us, he wants, he wants to know that we know that there is a distinction between the two. Because we need to know that the kingdom of God has come to do both. And if we are going to have a missions or an evangelistic or an outreach strategy that is representative of the kingdom strategy, then it is going to be one that addresses both of these areas. We don't want to leave one or the other out. We don't want to have just an evangelistic ministry that ignores the needs and the and the physical needs of the people. But by the same token, you don't want to have just a physical benevolent ministry that doesn't address the real problem which is sin and an eternity of damnation. That is actually a cruel joke to look after just the physical needs of people and not look after their spiritual needs as well. So Luke wants to make sure that we keep those distinct so that we know that that needs to be sort of the two-pronged approach of our ministry. Um, and, and I think also there's another reason, sort of a sideline reason. I think he wants to make sure that People recognize that not all physical ailments are the results of demons, okay? That superstition has persisted right up to the presence. How many of you have said gesundheit lately or Lord bless you when somebody sneezes? You know know where that comes from, don't you? That the belief was, and this was not very long ago, a couple hundred years ago, the belief was that every time you sneeze, you sneezed out a demon, okay? So they say, bless you. 
the demon's out. Okay, you know, you're good. That, that's superstition, folks. I mean, there's a reason that we know for sneezing. Now, don't stop saying bless you when somebody sneezes. I'm, I'm just saying that that is a tradition that is grounded in, in superstition. And Luke wants us to make sure that we know that this, it's not superstition, that these are real, that spiritual and demonic, uh, uh, presence in the world that we live in is absolutely real. So he sends them out both to heal the, the, the diseases and to cast out the demons. Now let's look at verse two, um, because we get to the core of things here. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Notice, first of all, that he sent them out. Now, most of you are going to know where I'm going to go with this because under that word sent is our familiar word apostello in the Greek. It is a word that means to send. It is a word that we in the noun form is apostle, at least in our day. Now, the word is not unique to Christianity. It is not a new word. In fact, it is used throughout ancient Greek for all different kinds of things. And it actually was used by the Jews. But it didn't mean what it means in a Christian context. In other words, there might have been Jewish apostles. But the apostle to a Jew was part of a delegation that was sent someplace. Okay, For instance, a delegation of Jews sent out into the diaspora to collect the sacred tribute from all of the synagogues out there, well, they would be called apostles and, and they would be sent ones. You know that I've coined the phrase apostling. We go apostling or we're apostlers. We're not apostles. Don't get that wrong. But we do, we are sent ones. Well, there, there, there were Jews who were sent ones at those, at that time. In fact, it doesn't even have to be, uh, a human or even animate. Okay. A flotilla of cargo ships was sent in this sense and and the and the, the the captains of those ships were called apostles all right so the word's not unique to christianity but what it means in christianity is not only unique it's radical it's never been done before the idea this this strategy that jesus is introducing it's old hat to us because it's been around for 2000 years but at the time that jesus introduced it it was absolutely brand new and and now the the idea of evangelizing is not necessarily new because after all you remember the jews did evangelize you can't read chapter 23 of matthew without reading this statement jesus railing against their apostasy says woe to you scribes and pharisees hypocrites for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Man, that is harsh language that Jesus uses to, to talk about their evangelistic efforts. But here's what I want you to see about those efforts. They were the individual works of zealots interested, and I don't mean zealous in the sense of these zealots, they were usually Pharisees, who were so zealous of their religion that they were interested in turning people to their beliefs. And sometimes I worry in our evangelistic outreach when so many people with very high D personalities get there and really want to change people's lives, sometimes we want to grab them by the throats and beat them over the head with Bibles. Well, that was the Pharisaical way of doing things. And and it was never organized. In other words, a rabbi would never in a million years dream of sending his 
disciples out on their own. He wouldn't even send them out if he went with them. That wasn't something they did. This is very unique to Jesus. But for Jesus to send his disciples out after 18 months of training, if that much, was absolutely unheard of. But the way, the reason that Jesus can do this is going to reflect the very core of the kingdom strategy. Why do you think Jesus can do that? How can he get away with turning people out who he's been training for 18 uh, months? They're not seminary trained. They're not even of the most intelligent or wealthy class. These are fishermen. These are people who work with their hands. Now, how can he turn them out uh, uh, after 18 months of training and think in his wildest imagination that they're not going to run off and, and do something absolutely opposite of what he's taught them? Because he's sending them out in his name. He's sending them out under the oversight of the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, for God to be on the boat is essential to the kingdom strategy. If Jesus is not on the boat, it sinks or it goes astray. And therefore, he can send them out because he knows that his spirit is with them. He knows that they're being guided and directed and boundaries placed upon them. And the continuation of that training happens even on the road, even though he is physically not there. Why? Because he's God. And God is the central aspect of this kingdom strategy. And so the, the, the 12 can be sent out. They can be apostles. They can go out. And Jesus knows that they're going to stay true to his teaching because the spirit is there with them. And that is a vital thing. If you don't get that, you're not going to get the kingdom strategy because it is a strategy that depend, it starts and ends with Jesus. We are the hands and feet and arms and legs and voices. We are not the drivers. We are not the deciders. We are not the discerners. All of that is the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. If, we, if, if we're doing it right, we're in the background, humble and submissive to our Lord who takes us and utilizes us for his glory and not for ours. When Jesus sent his disciples out, he sent them out in his name. He didn't send them out in the name of Moses or the name of the law or the name of the temple or the name of the circumcised. He didn't do any of that. He sent them out in my name. Why? Because those who believe in my name will be saved. And that's the strategy. And that's why he's sending them out the way that he sends them out. So the very idea of apostling is absolutely central to this. Otherwise, brothers and sisters, and I keep using this, let's go back to the crossing of that Sea of Galilee. Jesus on the boat, nothing's going to happen to it. It makes its destination and accomplishes a marvelous and beautiful picture for the kingdom. Jesus not on the boat, the boat sinks. Okay, It never makes it to the other side or at the very best it gets blown down to the very southern tip of the Sea of Galilee and never makes its destination. Now brothers and sisters, when you look at that little boat, you got to realize now in, in the world in which we live, that's us. That's the church. That is the church of Jesus Christ on the, uh, on, in the midst of a storm on treacherous, treacherous waters. And we need to make sure that, that we have a pilot on that boat. And that, that pilot is Jesus or else we're in the same situation. We can get blown astray. And the world is full of people that is blown astray. Um, and, and, and are still preaching and teaching, but they're not, they're not on the mark at, at all. 
Well, anyway, notice the, what he called them and sent them out to do. Right up front, sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. Once again, brothers and sisters, this is peppered throughout Luke's gospel. It is the supremacy, the centrality of the preaching and teaching of the word of God. That word proclaim that is used there in the Greek is caruso. That is the New Testament's word for expository preaching of the word of God. What I try to do every Sunday, what we try to do in every venue in this church is to stay true to the word of God, the infallible, inerrant word to put it first, to get our marching orders, to get our ethics, to get our standards, to get everything that we do from that word. We try to stay true to that. Well, that is exactly how Jesus sent these apostles out to proclaim, to exposit the word of God first and foremost. Now, an interesting thought here, and I don't have time to develop it too deeply, But you remember Brother Clayton read that passage from 1 Corinthians. And in that passage, Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified. And and if you go back into Acts and and you listen to the the sermons of Peter, they're all preaching Christ resurrected. Okay, so... Jesus at this time is there, so he's not crucified, he's not in the grave, he's not resurrected, and he's not ascended. Most of what we teach, which is the mechanics of of atonement, what were these guys teaching? What were they preaching? When they went out to proclaim the kingdom of God, what were they proclaiming? I think it's the same thing that Jesus was proclaiming, which was the same thing that John the Baptist was proclaiming. Repent. For the kingdom of God is upon you. Jesus in Mark says, repent and believe the gospel. What's the gospel? Jesus is the gospel. Jesus has come to save. God has sent his Messiah. The kingdom of heaven is upon you. And an entirely new system of salvation has come upon you. So repent and believe in the gospel is what they're saying. They, they didn't have the mechanics of how we're saved or a perfect life of Jesus and how we become righteous or his resurrection and how we will be resurrected too. They didn't have any of that. What they are doing is preaching the central, most important aspect of the kingdom strategy, which is Jesus. Jesus, in, in, in the fact that he is the very Messiah of God incarnate on this earth. And I tell you what, if more people were preaching Jesus in this world, I think the world would be a lot more um, directed towards the truth. Well, anyway, notice that they are uh, indeed preaching and they are healing the sick. And, and I'm not going to go into it. Many of you know this, that when we talk about apostles and apostling, they're sort of the one-two punch. It's not that the healing ministry of Jesus is not important. It's vastly important. His compassion comes out. He heals, but the healing ministry was to authenticate the messenger so that the message, the proclaiming, would be authenticated. And so he gives the same thing to the disciple or the apostles for the same reason, so that they would be authenticated as being the ambassadors and emissaries of the Son of the Most High God 
Even the demons know that. And he was given this ability to heal beautifully so that others would believe in their message and be saved. After all, that is the very core of what they're about. Well, after establishing the, the, the strategy, Jesus goes on to give these apostles some specifics about this particular journey or outreach. Notice in the third verse. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. Now, I'm going to resist the urge. I probably will do a little bit more in the after church, but I'm going to resist the urge to go into each one of these and talk about them. There's some really interesting things here. Like, why would Jesus say no tunics? I'm, I'm sorry, no staffs. Staffs were very important for traveling on foot in those days. And what does he mean by no bag? Okay, obviously we think about luggage, you know, bags. Well, it, it could have been a bag that they kept their food in, but there was also a clearly recognizable bag that itinerant preachers took with them. When these little golden plates get passed around, you know, you don't have to ask, what's this for? You, You know, it's an offering plate to put money in. Well, when itinerant preachers had a particular kind of bag, the reason for it was to pass around to collect money because that's the way they made their living. And just like some of the celebrity pastors today, some of them made quite a good living at it, although they were not truly representing God. They were just very charismatic people. So what does Jesus mean by bag? Well, it, it could be that. Why would he send his disciples out with no food and no money to buy food or a place to to um, live? And why would he say only take one pair of underwear? I mean, what what's the point of all of this? Well, the point is that Jesus wants his apostles, his sent ones, to be totally and completely dependent upon him. It's 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 that if if you need something, I'll provide it. If if I don't provide it, you don't need it. But I I want you when you go forward, whether it is in your physical needs like food and water and lodging, or whether it is in your spiritual needs and especially what you are teaching and preaching, I want that to be totally directed and dependent upon me. I'm not sending you out on your own for your own purposes. I am sending you out as ambassadors and emissaries of the king of the kingdom of God. That is the central reason for their commission is to be sent out in Jesus' name. And so therefore you don't need anything, anything that will detract from you, anything that will cause you to depend on yourself. Now, brothers and sisters, let me give you a principle here. And it's a principle for kingdom strategy. The more that you need the king of this kingdom, the more that you need Jesus, the more that you depend on him, the more that you reflect him, the more impact you will have on the kingdom of God. The more you will be able to fulfill and succeed in the kingdom strategy. That does not mean at all that you will have the biggest ministry. It does not mean that you will have health, wealth, and prosperity. It does not mean that you will have a massive following on social media. 
What it means is that no matter how small or reduced or finite your calling is, that you will have more of an impact on the kingdom of God following the strategy of the kingdom than you will if you follow your own strategy and amass a mass of following. Numbers don't count in this game. They don't count in this battle. What counts is whether or not you are fulfilling the purpose of your king. Because it's his kingdom. And you are the foot soldiers. And so therefore, the the the, the principle is, is one that runs throughout. That Jesus wants us dependent upon him. And boy, I tell you what. If you've ever been in ministry to him and you start becoming, you're one of the fortunate ones, you start becoming dependent on yourself and he kicks that rug out from under you and lets you go into a free fall, you know. Sometimes he's kind of like a guy who's got a puppy on a choke chain. He just kind of holds you up and says, do I have your attention yet? You know, anybody been in that situation? That's the lucky ones. I'm not lucky. We know what I mean. The providentially directed ones. Because the other ones get blown off course and they end up with massive followings, but they are not benefiting the kingdom of God at all. Well, anyway, he tells them to um, not take anything with them. And then he talks about their lodging in verse 4. Whatever house you enter, stay there. And from there, depart. Really interesting statement. First of all, Jesus is obviously depending upon Hebrew hospitality for the food and lodging of, of his apostles. Um, and quite different in those days, and most of you know this, than it is in our day. <laughs> Somebody pounds on your door at 10 o'clock at night demanding to get in, um, you call 911 because you know, you've got a problem. But in those days, they were commanded by God to, 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 to be um, a good to the sojourner and the traveler and the stranger. The rationale was that when you were in Egypt, you were shown blessing. That's before they became slaves. But you were shown blessing. I'm the Lord your God. You will take care of the strangers that come to your house. So there was a strong feeling of hospitality that where people would take you into their homes, wash your feet, give you a place to stay and feed you for the time that you were there. Okay, that's what the hospitality was. Now... Jesus is depending on that for his disciples. That's where you're going to eat and sleep as people are going to take you into their house. But notice what he says there. This is very interesting. He says that, um, but when you enter there, stay there. Don't, don't leave there. Don't go from one house to the next. Stay there. And when it is time to depart, depart from there. Now, what is Jesus saying with that? Well, I tell you what, there are some career celebrity pastors who need to hear this. And also people that do an awful lot of what we call church hopping. They just pop from one to the next with no sense of loyalty to the church that God has brought them to. And may be asking you to flower like a, in a mud puddle. Because he's saying that, okay, don't, when, when, when you go to a house and it's very modest and they feed you gruel three times a day and then somebody down the street has got a, a feather bed and a nice pillow and a gourmet meal three times a day, what is it going to say to the people that you have come to minister to if you said, okay, thank you very much, but no thank you, I think I'll take this house, it's much better. That's not the way it's going to be, he says. When you enter a house, stay there because after all, you are not under your own power. 
And you know something? I choose the house that you're going to stay in. And we call them divine appointments in the our evangelistic outreach. And sometimes it takes multiple times to share the gospel with people before they finally get it. But brothers and sisters, kind of wrapped up in this is another one of those core aspects of the kingdom, of the kingdom strategy. Because you see, hospitality goes both ways. The the host would be hospitable to the sojourner, but the sojourner needs to be hospitable to the host and not outstay their welcome. That was the kind of the the way it worked, is you wouldn't just move in and then send for your mother and father and move them in because you've got a cushy place to stay. That's not the way it worked. They, they showed hospitality, but the, the, the guest also showed hospitality by moving on when it was time. So why would Jesus want these disciples to move on, to, to only spend a short amount of time in each place? Well, it goes back to the very nature of the kingdom strategy. You see, the kingdom strategy is not that there would be 11 men, and I'm discounting Judas now, but there would be 11 men and the entire growth of the kingdom of God would fall upon their shoulders. They are going to be completely limited to what they can themselves do and half of them are going to be killed before a couple of decades are out. Okay, That's not going to work. The kingdom strategy is what we saw happen in Gerasene. To that demoniac. That's the reason Jesus left him there. Because my disciples are going to come home. They're going to continue with their education. But you stay here and be a light for the kingdom. And I will draw people out of the darkness to find your light. You've got one job. Go tell people what God has done to you. And tell it everywhere you can get an ear. And and, and that is so essential. Brothers and sisters, that's why we have churches. We call them particular church. That's what we are. We are a little bitty group of people in God's vast kingdom that God brings people here to find the light. And all we have to do is continue to shine the light. And we find it in his words. Okay? It, 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 is, it is not dependent on just one group of people for growth. And that's the reason for the exponential growth. So, in other words, what he wants his apostles to do is you, you go stay with people. You stay there. You share the gospel with them. If it's my d- desire, well, you've got yourself a little house church right there. You move on. That's what Paul did. He'd establish a church and then he would move on. Now, some of them, he would stay for an extended period of time because they needed help. But that has been the modus operandi of the kingdom from the very beginning. And that's one of the reasons I think that Jesus is saying, hey, don't stay there when it's time to leave. And especially if they don't accept you, then it's time to move on to the next village. That's kind of where he puts his attention in this next verse. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. This is one of those verses that really is a sermon or a series of sermons in itself that I'm, I'm just going to have to choose the way that, that I look at it. This goes back to the parable of the sower and the different soils. Some will accept the gospel. Some will reject it. Jesus says to you has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given so that seeing they will not see and hearing they will not understand. Now, that is incorporated in here. There will be people in the field who will accept the gospel and those who will not re- will not accept it but reject it. But I want to key just on that gesture that Jesus talks about because there's something embedded in this that I think is 
really significant. And, and that's the shaking off of the dust of their feet when they left the town that rejects the gospel. Now, that gesture came, it was, a, the Jews started it, kind of, um, because the Jews really believed, and rightfully so, that Israel, at least in the Old Testament period, was the holy land, the promised land, the land that God had promised Abram. But they didn't just believe it was the holy land, they believed it was holy land, that literally the dirt and the dust on it was holy, set apart. So when they went into pagan territories, when they went to a Gentile area, and they got the dust of that place on their feet, well, that's unholy dust. That is defiled dust. So when they came to the border of the Holy Land, what they would do would be to shake the dust of the defiled pagan land off their feet so they would not defile the Holy Land that was Israel. You may remember the the story in John. Remember when the Sanhedrin, or at least the delegation from the Sanhedrin, took Jesus to Pilate's house? And it was the Passover, and they wouldn't go in? Because they knew if they got any of his dust on their feet, they would be ceremonially defiled and not able to eat their Passover meal. So they stayed outside in the street. This was a firm belief. But it's important that you realize that it is wrapped up in the idea that on that side of the line is defiled dust and on this side of the line is holy dust. So I shake off your defiled dust, and by doing that, what I am telling you is that I am a child of God, and you are not. I am circumcised. I have the oracles of God. I am a son of Abraham. I have the sacrificial system. I have the temple. I have all of these things. I am a child of God and you are outside of the covenant of God. And so therefore, as a testimony against you, I shake the dust off of my feet. But have you picked up the extraordinary part of this? The usage of this? Jesus isn't sending his disciples into pagan Gentile lands. In fact, he says in the 10th chapter of Matthew, go nowhere among the Gentiles, but only to the towns and villages of Israel. I'm sending you out to the lost sheep of Israel. So this is all happening on holy ground. And what Jesus says to them is if they reject me, if they're not accepting me, if they don't accept the gospel, it's not you they're rejecting, it's me they're rejecting. And so therefore, even though they are Jews and they think that they are the sons of Abraham and the children of God, shake the dust off your feet. As if to say there is a brand new distinction. There is a new way to determine who the children of God are. And it is not whether you're sons of Abraham or not. It is whether or not you believe in the name of the only son of God. That is what makes a person a son or a daughter of God. And by shaking their feet, their, the dust off their feet, they are making that statement. That's extraordinary. What Jesus is telling his disciples and his apostles to do. It, it, it's, a, it's a threshold. It, it's a turning. Because from now on, what used to be the designation of the people of God, no longer it is all Jesus. I love that, that, that little 
passage from John, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. Whoever believes in the son of God is saved but whoever does not believe in the son of God is condemned already because he did not believe in the name of the son of God. I just kind of loosely quote things. I don't know it exactly. But that's exactly what he's talking about. There's there, there's a different salvation here. Soteriology has changed. Redemption is changed. And so therefore, even though there's a continuity between the old and the new, I want you to shake the dust off your feet of those who reject me. Because now I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus, of course, saying that. Well, what a powerful statement that is. And he goes on, or the disciples go on, and we see that they obey him. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Sounds like they had quite a ministry. Sounds like they kind of blanketed um, Galilee before in the 50th verse, as I said, Jesus is going to turn his face towards Jerusalem and towards the cross. So there's so so much I want to say about this. I'm just going to have to... Kind of reduce what what I say, but first of all, let me just let me just say this: that what this is doing for the first time is implementing the kingdom strategy, and the kingdom strategy is a perfect strategy, brothers and sisters, because it is God's strategy. The kingdom of God was never intended to be built by human hands, ever. It is not a temple to our own charismatic ability to sway people to our point of view. The kingdom of God is God's kingdom. He alone builds it and he determines who is in it. We are his hands and his feet and his arms and his legs and his voices. And that is what we are called to do. And we need to recognize that we have a a part of this and he has the main part of this. And when we go forward, we need to not be taking these things as ours, but to trust and believe that God is who he says he is. You know what's hard? It's when you have to shake the dust off your feet to someone you love and someone you know. Especially if it's your child or your parents or your brother or your sister or loved one. And you share the gospel with them and you share the gospel and you tell them about Jesus and you do everything right and they reject it, reject it, reject it. There comes a time that the teaching that we have before us is that you shake the dust off your feet and you move on to the next town. And you say to me, Pastor, I can't do that. It's my son. It's my daughter. Well, if you say that, you've missed The very core of the kingdom strategy. It's not up to you. You're not the only evangelist on this earth. That can reach your son or your daughter. Or your mother or your father. Or your sister or your brother. Or your loved ones. In fact quite often. You're the last person who's going to actually reach them. And if you you grab them by the throat. And pin them down. And beat them over the heads with the Bible. You're just going to harden them against the gospel. And, and, and in order to be able to trust the one who's in charge here is, is to let it go sometimes. 
Because you see, the Lord leaves the demoniac over there on the other side because it's not the, it's not the end. It's not over. He's going to continue the process and every last one who is his will come into his fold. He will not lose one. And it doesn't depend on you. And I know it's hard, but there comes a time that you've got to stop throwing your pearls before swine. And you have to realize that someone has rejected the gospel. Mark it off. Move on to the next town. But don't see I've just given them over to the devil. Because you haven't. Because if they're going to be saved, brothers and sisters, God is going to save them, not you. So that's the very core of what we're seeing. So this is God's strategy. And, and the whole problem is when we start trying to take his job upon ourselves. To make it our strategy. Now... I, Again, I'm just going to have to skip over something entirely. Um, but I, I, I want to address um, probably the, 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 the bulk of you. Because this is usually the time in a sermon like this that I start, I would say, encouraging you to share the gospel with others. You would probably say harassing you because I do it all the time. And I tell you, you need to be out there as a witness to Christ because you've been commissioned to do so. And I do not want in any way, please, you know me. You know I'm an evangelist at heart. You know that we have spent many years training many of you in evangelism, how to share your faith, the very aspects of what the salvation is. And, and, And I'm not saying that you're not to be an evangelist, but I do believe that not everyone is called to be an evangelist just like not everyone is called to be a teacher or a preacher everyone is called to evangelize every single one of you are called to know how to share your faith but it doesn't mean that that is your calling because let me tell you something people who are called to evangelize they're going to find a way They've got a burning in their soul. And if they are not telling people about Jesus, man, there is something that just starts to, 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 uh, 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 to break apart on the inside of them. And if they don't have the way in their church, they're going to go down on the street with a bullhorn and stop telling people about Jesus that way. Because they're called for that. But not everyone is called for that. Some of you are, 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 are you, you're, you don't have the words and you have trouble articulating things. And when I, I browbeat you about going out and sharing the gospel, you leave defeated and feeling like you're, you know, you're, you're guilty and that you've failed to do something. Well, let me explain that, that what we have here is a picture of the battle, the, 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 um, the strategy of the kingdom. And in that strategy, we have three people who everyone can emulate. You may not be an apostle. You're not an apostle, the kind of these apostles. You may not actually be someone who goes on the mission field. You may not go to seminary and become a pastor. But there is one thing that you can do. You can do what the gathering demoniac did. You can tell people what God did to you. You see, that's so important. That man, he didn't go to seminary. That man... He didn't understand soteriology. He didn't understand the substitutional sacrificial atonement of Jesus Christ because that hadn't even happened yet. You could ask him all day long, what's the difference between a superlapsarian and an infralapsarian? And he's not going to know. But there's one thing he did know. I was lost. And now I'm found. I was infested with demons. 
I was in misery. I was naked. And now I'm clothed. I was insane. And now I'm in my right mind. How did this happen to you? A man named Jesus came by. And he told me everything. And I know I want you to meet him. And I may not be able to tell you about him. But I know people who can. So the job is something that everyone can do. What about that woman with the flow of blood? Just think about it. What did she do? As soon as she found out that she'd been busted, that she, everybody knew that she had touched Jesus and been healed, she fell down on her face right there in the crowd in front of Jesus, and she told everyone what had happened. I was incurable. This world had me, and I was losing my life force day in and day out, and no one could stop the, the drain on my being until I touched Jesus Christ. And Jesus changed my life and made me whole. You think the only people that she ever shared that with were the people that were right there? She probably continued for the rest of her life to tell people what Jesus had done for her. And do you think Jairus and his wife and daughter could go out for a Sunday stroll without being a testimony to the power of Jesus Christ? There are some of us, brothers and sisters, that all we have to do is just to walk into a church and sit down and pray and say, glory be to God. And people are going to say, man, oh man, what did God do to that person? So that's what I want you to see. Every one of you can say, I was bound by evil and sin. And Jesus set me free. I, I was I was consumed with, with this impossible, incurable disease. And Jesus healed me. I was dead. And now I'm alive. I was blind and now I see. And so you just tell people what Jesus did to you. And and some of you say, well, I don't have that kind of testimony. Um, I've always known Jesus. Yours is the greatest testimony. By far, yours is the greatest testimony because God has kept you to himself from before the time you could even think about him. You are unique in in the world around us. Because you've hardly ever known a time that you didn't know Jesus. So Jesus has held you close. Do you you get the picture? Brothers and sisters, this is the kingdom strategy. It's not just to have a program that you can recite, where you can recite the mechanics of how people are saved or what Jesus did on the cross. It's to live it. It, it is that when people look at you and they see you, they live and they see the, the amazing power of Jesus just emanating through you. You don't have to do anything but show up. <laughs> but make sure that you live it, folks. The worst thing you can do is to speak it and not live it because then you become a hypocrite. You do more damage to the kingdom than you do good. Live the kingdom strategy, because that's the way that the kingdom has grown. That's the reason we're here for 2,000 years. And that's the reason we will be here until Jesus returns. Amen. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, we are so grateful for the clear instruction that you give us in Scripture. And we realize how easy it is for us to get off track and, and to move in, in areas that are going to sink our boat or, draw, or, or let us be blown off course. Lord, we just pray that that doesn't happen to us. Hold us true. You know, the, the, the things that drive so many churches and so many organizations, that, that's not your plan. Um, uh, keep us 
Keep us loyal to the calling you've given us. Keep us loyal to the place you have led us. Let us flower in the mud puddle if that's what you've called us to do. But nonetheless, let us let you be the director and the guide and the discerner, the one who brings people into your light and use the likes of us. May we never, ever fall out of amazement that you would do such a thing. And we will give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.